This episode is generously sponsored by PrepDish.com, a healthy meal planning service delivered to your inbox with love. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. All righty then, let's get to it. Today's episode is an HHTR flashback favorite. We're talking about launching our children into life, how we support our kids as they transition back to school and beyond. This show originally aired in um, August of 2016. Jessica Leahy is my first guest. Let's join that conversation. Jessica Leahy, she's an educator, writer, and speaker. Jessica is an English and writing teacher, correspondent for The Atlantic, commentator for Vermont Public Radio, and writes the parent-teacher conference column for The New York Times. Jessica is also the author of the New York Times best-selling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. Welcome, Jessica. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure. This is a subject I love to talk about because we fail. Part of being human is we, we, we do, we try, we fail, we get back up, we do again. Right. And it, what's so funny is how embarrassed we get about it. Um, there, you know, there are even stories of failures I've had that, uh, that it takes a bit of prodding for me to tell because I'm so ashamed of the times when I've made mistakes. But honestly, they've been some of my best learning opportunities. Indeed. So what inspired you to write The Gift of Failure? Um, I've been a teacher for a really long time, and I had been teaching middle school for about five years when I sort of realized that my my students were increasingly afraid to make mistakes. And, uh, you know, a lot of that comes down to sort of expectations and perfectionism, but a lot of it came down to the fact that they were just so used to having everything, all the consequences of their mistakes cleaned up after them that sort of making mistakes without a net in my classroom was so frightening to them. So, you know, and then I realized 
to my horror that apparently I was doing the same thing to my own children. I was overparenting <laughs> my own children and teaching them that, you know, that that you don't make mistakes. And so I need, I personally needed a book that was sort of a very how-to, um, turn the ship around, sort of uh, uh, teach kids, allow myself um, and, and my students and my own children to treat uh, failure as a real learning experience and, and tap a little bit into some of the stuff that can happen when you do that, when you think in a sort of more intellectually brave way. And you know, what's interesting as, as parents, because I'm a parent as well, that we are part of the problem, that we mm-hmm. so desperately want or, and expect the kids to do and be better than ourselves, that in essence, we are crippling them with that desire or well, by that desire. That for them. I mean, that's what they see, you know, uh, we're, uh, you know, we not only don't want to make any mistakes ourselves, but a lot of parents, and, you know, it's really a horrible thing to do to kids, but a lot of parents really see their kids as the final arbiter on their own success. That, you know, it's really great to be able to tell people that our kids, you know, have gotten into the best colleges and are on the elite traveling soccer team, and, you know, somehow that's that's our way of saying, oh, look, I'm really killing it on this parenting thing. Um, <laughs> we, don't want, we don't want people to know about our kids' mistakes. And, and they see that. They see that they're not, you know, supposed to screw up because then, you know, how are we going to – how are we going to feel about our parenting and how are we going to feel about them? And then they get all bound up with, you know, does my, do my mom and dad just love me because of, you know, the, the accomplishments and the report card and, and that kind of thing. It's, it's a terrible cycle to get into. And two things come to mind. The first is that when we fail, we feel shame, mm-hmm. right? And, and shame is, is, you know, Brene Brown, mm-hmm. I think, describes it perfectly about, you know, that, that we are bad, that the essence mm-hmm. of who we are is bad right. because of our shame. When, in fact, the failure is a, an external thing. It's a happening. Right. Yeah. I, what was really interesting is uh, a couple months ago, um, I, I was really sort of pushed by, uh, I wrote something for the virgin.com website, and, and Richard Branson um, had asked me to write about my biggest failure. And, you know, I'm pretty open about this stuff, but there was one thing, a story I hadn't told to anyone but my students, and that was that when I first wrote this book, the first draft um, wasn't very good. <laughs> it was, as my editor put it at the time, unpublishable. And, um, you know, there that was such a shame-filled experience for me. And somehow, I keep forgetting the fact that the way that story turns out is that I said, look, I need, give me another chance. Let me write three chapters. And if I, if these three chapters are good, then we can move forward. And she let me have this opportunity to try to make it work. And those three chapters, you know, I, I asked for all of the feedback, even the really bad stuff. I was like, give it to me. Tell me how I can learn. Tell me how I can make it better. And those three chapters worked, and that turned into five chapters, which turned into the rest of the book. And, you know, it, it ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. But for some reason, that successful learning process is not the part of the story that I tend to fixate on. What I tend to fixate on is, oh, my gosh, I'm a failure as a writer because my first draft wasn't very good. Well, of course my 
my first draft wasn't very good. It was the first time I'd ever written a book. You know, right. that's, the, that's where our brains go is to that horrible, shameful, you know, I wrote an unpublishable book and forget the second half of the story, which is, wow, I learned a lot from that. And next time I write a book, the learning curve is going to be much flatter. And it is in the persistence, the willingness to try to attempt. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I, I don't even think it's trying. We either we do or we don't. So you, right. you did it. It didn't have the outcome you would have hoped. Um, but it, boy, it stretched you. It tested yeah, you. And, and that's, that's the part that I hope my children see. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book, there's an entire chapter on, on, you know, please let the one place that we focus on our personal goals over grades and accomplishments like grades, external motivators like grades, be at home. And, and the one thing I try to do here in front of my kids is set goals for myself that are a little bit scary because I don't want them to ever see me as the kind of person that, you know, only takes the safe gambles, the, you know, that doesn't doesn't ever stretch myself because that's, you know, that constant process of learning is what we need to be modeling for our kids. It's amazing to me when I get questions when I'm out doing speaking engagements. I got a question recently from a parent saying, you know, my kids just don't like to read for pleasure. What is that? I try so hard. I get them all these books. And I said, well, do they see you read for pleasure? And she had to admit that no, her children never see her read for pleasure. And I said, well, how are we, you supposed to tell them that they're supposed to love reading if they don't see you love reading? Um, that modeling for our kids is just such an important part of what we do. You know, I want to I want to talk to you about that because I I I, I love reading. My children <laughs> do not like reading, um, and one of them is in college, so that is kind of interesting. But I I also look back on how I developed and the modeling that I had, and I didn't develop a love of reading until I was an adult, till I was good right. and ready even though right. it was modeled for me. That's so interesting. I, I've talked to a lot of people like that. Um, I, I lo- also love to write about literacy, and um, you know, I, it's such a big topic for me. And yet I do run into a lot of adults who said, you know what, it wasn't until I got older and I realized that reading didn't just have to be books that were assigned to me. I think that's the trap we fall into is we um, – I, I talked to a mom recently who said, I need for you to make a list for me of books that my kids should be reading because I just think they should be reading really challenging books. And and I said, well, what does your kid like to read? And they said, oh, my kid really likes to read um, this. There's a, a series of books uh, uh, by Jeff Kinney, and uh, they're you know very cartoony, and, and the language is a little more simplistic. And I said, well, why aren't they allowed to read those? And she said, well, I threw those away. I gave them away because I don't think those are challenging enough. And I said, you know, what, you're, what she's effectively doing is killing off her kids' love of learning because we have to allow kids at a certain point to say, these are the things I want to read and let them rediscover that reading is, is such a an amazing experience in, um, you know, disappearing inside of another character or to, or learning something about something you've never experienced before. And if everything we're giving them and, and, and sort of pushing on them is stuff that they don't want to read or turning everything into an assignment, then I don't know that there's much hope to getting them to really love reading. Let's step into the over-parenting territory because yeah. this is something that so many of us, particularly in um, 
Well, actually, I was going to say Western culture, but I take that back. Every culture, Mm -hmm. you know, has the quintessential tiger parent or tiger mom. You know, we we all have that image in our minds and we flash on that. But why doesn't it work? (laughs) Well, it doesn't work for a few reasons. It turns out, um, put very, very simply, that anything we do to try to control another human being causes them to sort of dig their heels in and stop wanting to do that thing that they're trying to be controlled to do. And it turns out that, and you know, Dan Pink covers this beautifully in Drive and in the research that he does, that extrinsic motivators, whether that's grades or honors or, you know, the positive stuff and the negative stuff, grounding, um, surveillance, all of those things cause kids, cause anyone to be less motivated to to do the thing it is that we want them to do. And it turns out what we really need is intrinsic motivation. And intrinsic motivation needs three things. It needs kids need to feel autonomous, which means they have control over their environment and the things that they're doing to a limit, of course. And they need to feel competent, which is not the same thing as confident. Um, We can't talk kids into feeling competent. That just happens through experience. And they need to feel connected, meaning they need to know that we love them no matter what, that we're not just, we don't just love them based on their grades and their accomplishments. Um, and if, if we can give kids a little more control and help them feel competent and help them feel like they have some more control over their world, we stand a much better chance of helping them want to learn, want to read, want to do these other things. Um, and, you know, that's a really hard thing to do, to step back and have some faith in our kids that they'll do the right thing because it feels as a parent like the stakes are so high. It's so scary. We don't want them to fail because what about college and what about, you know, <laughs> these things that it feels like so dire and the media wants us to feel like these things are so dire and they're actually kids, you know, kids have to fail. That's how childhood works. And uh, no matter how much we don't want them to fail, that it, it just doesn't work to set them up that way. It's not just kids that have to fail. We all have to fail. We all have to know what it's like to have a skinned knee, get back up, dust it off, and and move on and continue and continue to um, strive uh, for something better. We're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue the conversation with Jessica Leahy. Leahy. She is the author of The Gift of Failure. To learn more, please visit www.jessicaleahy.com. Before we head to the break, I want to talk to all the busy family cooks out there. You're going to want to listen to this. Prep Dish is a healthy meal planning service that will make your life a little easier, more organized, and joyful. PrepDish stepped in to save the day in my house by increasing efficiency and decreasing stress. It helped assure that we're eating nutritious and delicious high-quality food. It's been bringing our family and friends together around the dinner table, creating a happier and healthier environment. Craft healthy and delicious gluten-free, dairy-free, and paleo meals right in your own kitchen with love. Each week, you'll get an email with a done-for-you grocery list and prep-ahead instructions for your weekly meals. You'll do your chopping and prepping ahead of time, leaving you more time to connect with family and friends. I'm a big fan of Prep Dish's yummy cumin seed crusted sea bass with mango salsa, forbidden rice and cucumber, and the almond butter brownies are yum. 
Prep Dish takes the guesswork out of the equation by doing the meal planning for you. And here's the best part. Founder Allison is offering listeners a free two-week trial to check it out. You can't beat that gift. Check out PrepDish.com slash happy for this amazing deal. Once again, that's PrepDish.com slash happy for your first two weeks free. That's a no-brainer. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are we happy yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to this HHTR flashback favorite. Let's rejoin the conversation with my guest, Jessica Leahy, that originally aired in August of 2016. So, Jessica, prior to the break, we were talking about overparenting and why it doesn't work. Uh, you had moved into um, extrinsic versus intrinsic motivators, um, including autonomy, competence, and connection. And during the break, you said something that is fascinating to me and I think really worth talking about, and that is frustration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's, this, uh, there's a researcher who has looked at sort of how kids – cope when they're um, faced with something that is frustrating and and those children, their response from the parent that's sitting there with them. The kids who have a parent who step in and like immediately fix it for them, those kids never really learn how to sit with their frustration and think, okay, no, 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 I can figure this out. I can, you know, reread the instructions or I can, you know, really rely on myself to figure this out. And the important thing about that is that when those kids get to my classroom, whether that's in middle school or high school or whatever, the kids who are able to sit with frustration are much more teachable because there's this concept called desirable difficulties, Um, difficulties that are just a little bit beyond a kid's ability level and their ability to sort of sit with the frustration that goes along with that and work it out for themselves. Um, Their brains... It's a complicated story, but the way that information then gets into their brain and gets into their long-term memory is much more efficient. 
So you can have the smartest kid in the world and an average kid, and if the one that's more able to get frustrated and say, no, 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 I can figure this out for myself, that kid is going to do better. Because as we were talking about before, you know, just having frustrating experiences and just having, you know, failing, that's not what's important here. It's our response to making mistakes, our response to frustration, our response to failure. That's what resilience is, that sort of evolution that we can make about, you know, okay, well, I tried X, Y, and Z. Now I clearly need to try something different and, um, and moving forward with that. That evolution, that adaptation is, is sort of what determines how we're going to do in the end. So the response to failure is actually more, exp- more important than just repeated failures, obviously. And what's interesting to me is that when we get ourselves into a situational pickle, um, we, we, we got ourselves into it, right? 99.9 tenths percent of the time. And I'm, I'm talking about the average condition. We kind mm-hmm. of, we find our way there through circumstance, mm-hmm. which implies that if we can get ourselves into it, mm-hmm. that we can get ourselves out of it. Right. There's actually some really neat research on, you know, people who feel like they don't have the ability to get their, themselves out of it. That's something called learned helplessness. And it's funny, I actually wrote an article one time about kids who say, I can't do it, when we know that from just a dexterity standpoint or a competence standpoint that they can. And I was talking to a therapist, and I, I was calling it feigned helplessness. And the therapist said, no, 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 this is called learned helplessness. And guess who teaches them that? <laughs> the parents do. Um, the more we rescue our kids, every time we step in to rescue them, what we're really saying to them is, I don't trust you. I don't think you have the competence to handle that here. Let me do it for you. And those kids in the end are less likely to feel like they have the ability to get themselves out of that pickle you were just talking about. Um, And we as parents, we're the ones who teach them that. Yep. And I'm thinking of a situation with my uh, older child. I have a daughter that started her freshman year in college this past fall and she, the first week of the uh, of arrival on campus, she knew he, she had made a terrible mistake, and she wanted mom to fix it. <laughs> and I said, "I'm not fixing it. You yeah. go figure it out. I will support you. Whatever decision that you make, right. I will support you. But it's not my problem." Yeah, yeah there are the, increasingly more and more kids showing up at college and just throwing their hands up in the air and not even knowing how to solve the most the simplest problem. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like that kid who, you know, when you, they say, Mom, where are my pants? And you say, they're on the floor of your room. And they stand there and they say, no, they're not. I can't find them. I mean, it's just a grown-up version of that. Yeah. Well, yep. it was the best thing I ever did for this daughter of mine because within a week she had of, of that, she had applied for a transfer. And yep. she transferred herself across the country at the winter break. And she did it all by herself and she made a good choice. Yeah, the stories I've been hearing um, of parents who have, who have stepped back and said, you know, it's time for me. I have made a mistake. I have been doing too much for you, and I'm very, very sorry. I've taught you to not rely on yourself, and that stops now because I trust you. I believe you are competent. I believe you can handle it. So go forth, my child, and, and you fix this. And the stories that I hear um, have been incredible of kids who have really said, oh, wow, you trust me to fix this myself, then I, I, maybe I can fix it myself. And then they do. It's amazing. It, it, it is amazing. And I think as parents, the, 
those are the markers that make us proud that it's not yeah. the the full ride scholarship it's not the a you know the 4.0 gpa or the a's on the report card or you know, like as you said traveling with the you know the the hot club team mm-hmm. it is really the ability to find oneself out of situations right. successfully and not just the things that make us proud of our kids but the things that make our kids proud of themselves you know, when I think back about big accomplishments, big accomplishments in my life, there, you know, there have there are some things that you know I'm really proud of. But actually, the things I'm proudest of were like when I was 20 and there was a railroad strike, but I really needed to get to this airport to pick someone up, and I figured it out on my own. I used a network of buses, and I, you know, I just I figured it out on my own. And and it seems like such a small thing, but for me, it was a huge growth moment. Um, those are the things that our kids are going to look back on and say, yeah, I'm a competent person. I can handle this. And, you know, I think this applies not only to the relationships with our children, but all relationships. You know, we mm-hmm. tend to become comfortable and complacent in a lot of our primary relationships. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of our husbands and our, our right, wives, yeah. our partners. Yeah. And we tend to want to overdo or overcompensate in those relationships and not give the other enough credit. Oh my gosh, it's, <laughs> uh, how did you know that's exactly the biggest uh, sticking point in my marriage? You know, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> I like things done a certain way. And my husband and I have been married now for 20 years, but it's, there has been a, there have been many times where he's just looked at me and he said, you're fairly sure that I'm stupid, aren't you? And because I want to step in and say, no, 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 you don't load the dishwashers, the dishes in the dishwasher that way, or I'll just take care of it for you. And, you know, those are the things we say to our children when we're overparenting our children, and yet we do it to our spouses and our friends, and, you know, and it's, it's something that we have to stop doing because we need the people around us to know that we respect them. And when we undermine their success by acting like they're not competent, that's not respect. It's true. It's true. I've got it going on in my own house. You know, (laughs) one of the areas is the laundry. You know, I love folding laundry. I find it very meditative. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when the laundry builds up, I'm like, why doesn't anybody helping here? I'm like, well, you're just going to refold what we do. So we're going to just let you do it. So I shoot myself in the foot by, you know, trying to control it. Well, my husband does not fold towels correctly, so I completely feel your pain. But actually, I just, uh, on my website, there's uh, at jessicalahey.com, there's a post about called Special Care Instructions about that. And I learned something very important. Dry erase markers work great on the outside of the washer and the dryer. If you wipe down your washer and dryer and then write the instructions for laundry on the outside of the washer and dryer with dry erase markers, no one has any excuses for saying they don't know how to do the laundry because all of the instructions are right there. Hilarious. This is, <laughs> this is perfect. You know, I'm going to just repeat that to send everybody over to jessicalahey.com if you want to learn tips for laundry and better living, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it worked out pretty well in our house, actually. It, it, it is very funny. And, you know, my partner who I've been with for many years, he says to me, you know, like, you know, I finally, after all these years, I can do the towels in the right thirds that you like. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's very very funny. Well, we are almost out of time, but before we go, I now. want to uh, ask you about putting these pieces together. What sure. does all of this look like in practice? If you have to send um, our listeners off with a um, two-minute speed coaching session, have at it, girl. 
Sure. Well, actually, there's a story in the book that's very specifically about what this looks like when you put it all together. So my son, who was having trouble in math and not getting his homework in on time, um, got his homework done beautifully one night, and I found out the next morning when I walked downstairs that he had left it on the coffee table in the living room, and I had to be at school in a half an hour anyway for something else completely. And I knew I could not take that homework to school for him, and it it freaked me out, and um, various people told me that that's just not the way we treat members of our family. We help them out. We have their back. And when my son got home, and I did not take the homework to him at school, he walked through the door, and I asked how his day was, and he said it went great. Because, And I said, well, what about the homework? And he said, well, you know, I didn't get to go out to recess with my friends, and my teacher wouldn't let me go out to recess even after I finished the homework. He said, this has been going on long enough, and it was time for me to figure out a strategy for how I was going to remember my homework every day. And he came up with the idea, which, believe me, was not the first time I, did, I had suggested it, but he came up with the idea of a checklist for coming up, um, for putting down everything he needed to remember before school every day. And, you know, not taking that homework, or to, if I had taken that homework into school, I would have felt so great about my parenting for that day, right? I would have felt like, oh, I rescued my kid. He didn't get in trouble with his teacher. The kids didn't tease him for forgetting stuff. Um, but that conversation with his teacher and that strategizing and that planning for the future, that coming up with his own strategy never would have happened. And so in the end, I think as parents, it's time for us to say, you know, these things that make me feel really, really good in the moment may not be the best long-term strategies for our kids. What if we let them we let them feel the consequences of their mistakes and we let them feel the natural sort of follow-through of making errors and let them strategize for the future. Um, I think our kids will learn a lot more. And in the end, we do get to feel good about our parenting because then we have this experience where our kid transfers to the right college and does it all on her own and she gets to feel competent and we get to feel proud that's where we really get to feel good about our parenting is in that long that long haul picture not in those day-to-day moments where it's really easy for us to rescue beautifully said thank you for being with me today Jessica Leahy to learn more about the gift of failure please visit www.jessicalahey.com on facebook the page is jessica potts leahy and on twitter at jess Leahy. Let's take that quick pause. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at harvestinghappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glasses half empty or half full, The glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. 
Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to HHTR's flashback favorite, focusing on launching our children into life, supporting our kids as they transition back to school and beyond. And my second guest today is a rebroadcast of an interview with Julie Lithcott-Hames that originally took place in January of 2018. Let's have a listen. My next guest is Julie Lithcott-Hames. And we're talking with her about her book, How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Julie spent a decade as Dean of Freshmen at Stanford University, where she received, and I hope I pronounced this well, Julie, the Dinkelspiel Award. Yes, good job. Yay, woohoo! For her contributions to the undergraduate experience. She's a mother of two teenagers. She has spoken and written widely on the phenomenon of helicopter parenting, and her work has appeared in a TED Talk and two TEDx Talks, as well as in the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, Forbes, and Parents Magazines. She holds, holds degrees from Stanford, Harvard Law School, and California College of the Arts, and is a member of the San Francisco Writers Grotto, and she lives in the Bay Area, and she is in the house. Hi, Julie. Hi, Lisa. Thanks so much for that great intro. I, oh. I, I hope I can, I'm sitting here in my, uh, well, I don't need to tell your listeners, I'm, it, it's morning here. Let's just say I'm not quite as uh, neatly dressed as I would be had I uh, had I gone off to uh, work outside the home today. So it's delightful to hear all of those, um, the great things that you've just said. I appreciate it. Well, they are all you. And I actually love sharing when our, our guests are willing to share their attire, because I would say that you you are in your mom getting the kids off to school uniform. Well, here's what happened. I'm starting <laughs> to answer. I'm starting to make that last comment. And I'm thinking, Julie, where are you going with this? You're on a radio podcast right now. Shut up. They do not need to know this. So I'm, I just started to ramble and, and babble. But the truth is, I am in my um, in a in a sort of. Um, comfy, uh, A-crew colored uh, robe. Um, my children have just left for high school. I was the parent that made them breakfast this morning, love to connect with my 15 and 17-year-old, have a busy day of calls, and didn't quite make it back upstairs between the kids and this uh, conversation with you. So I am actually, you know, in fleece socks and a, and a light, nice little uh, bathrobe in my yard pod, which is where I do my writing in a little 12 by 8 shed outside my house. Oh, that could be also known as the she cave, right? Exactly. It's my she cave. <laughs> or she shed. Is I think that's what they call it, the she shed. She shed, and I'm drinking some coffee, a nice dark roast, with a little half and half and equal. Oh, beautiful. And, and, and I think this, this does play to really the theme of what we're talking about. We have this image of what it takes to be successful, raise successful kids. And the reality of it is when we can empower our children to stand fully and efficiently on their own and um, 
recognize that whether they're in a bathrobe talking on a podcast or in a business suit in front of a board meeting, that it is that sense of being fully empowered and present that is really what dictates success. You know what? That's absolutely right. And I think it gets to the heart of what's wrong with our, why our overparenting causes such harm. There's no doubt we have the best of intentions when we keep track of every deadline and plan every activity and supervise every play date and effectively hold their hand through life. But we are depriving them of the chance to be, to actually develop and become a separate human being from us, which is what's contributing to these higher rates of anxiety and depression in children and adolescents and young adults. We are overhelping and in so doing, we interrupt the natural developmental process of self-efficacy, which is only developed when a human sees, hey, I exist. And I know I exist because my actions lead to outcomes. When we overhelp, we deprive them of developing a self. We must empower our kids, as you've said, to be their own person. You know, it's funny when you talk about overhelping. My, 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 he's my boyfriend, but he's my long-term partner. We've been together forever. Chris, Christopher always says to me, you're pre-chewing their food, you know? <laughs> right. And you know what? That's appropriate. Um, humans don't tend to do that, but other mammals do. You do that in the earliest, earliest years because they don't have teeth. You know, effectively Gerber baby food is pre-chewing the food, right? It, they manufacture mushed up food that we can feed our kids once they're old enough for solid food. But that stage ends. That stage ends. We should delight in the fact that now they can actually chew and eat the food themselves. And the next step after that is they have to learn to cut their own meat. And yeah. I share that example, Lisa, because I was this finger-wagging dean. I was a dean of freshmen at Stanford seeing too many overparented young adults on my campus. And I would say to every parent, you know, at a big talk at the start of freshman year, you know, trust your kid. Trust us. Now, please leave. You know, like, go. It's college. Stop overhelping. And then in 2009, after giving this speech eight times in a row, eight years in a row, <laughs> I come home. Sawyer and Avery, my kids are now eight and 10. I come home the next day at dinner time and I lean over and start cutting Sawyer's meat. And he was 10. And I was effectively doing what your very wise partner, Christopher, has said to stop doing. I was effectively still chewing up his food for him, right? I was cutting his meat. Like, what was I so afraid of? That the food that we had given him required such a sharp knife that somehow he was going to stab himself and die? You know? <laughs> yeah, I. Them how I, to hold and use knives. I hear you. And I have been that parent at a freshman orientation when my daughter went to college last year that oh. was told to leave, that was told to trust and let go. And I did. And I hugged goodbye. And I went out on the streets of New York City and had a good cry and then pulled up my panties and realized that my job was done. Well, and let me say this, Lisa. I mean, first of all, oh, that's going to be me in one year, and I know I will be weeping on some sidewalk. <laughs> you will, and it'll be okay. Honey, it's going to be all right. Exactly. Our emotion is real and legitimate, number one. Number two, we do not have to inflict it on our kids, though. You know, the best thing to do with that emotion is express it with friends who can relate. But don't burden your son or daughter with feeling like, oh, my gosh, my mom's not going to be OK without me. Oh, my gosh, my mom has no life without me. You know, right? That's what we're doing, all right? 
And we don't just drop them cold turkey at college. When we deans, I'm a former dean now, when we say, you know, please leave, we don't mean forever. Please turn your back on this child. Um, What we're saying is acknowledge that college is a new phase and stage of life. Remember your own self at 18, 19 and what you were capable of. Why should we expect anything less of young adults today? Here's the best thing you can do with a college student. I don't know if you've, if you've encountered this yet with your own, they call home or text home or whatever it is, Skype home, you know, with a concern, you know, my roommate is using my toothpaste. Um, my professor doesn't like me or is mean or gave me a B, you know, I didn't get into this club I wanted. And we're frantic for them, not necessarily, you know, with those examples, maybe we're not frantic, but we're sort of, oh, no, oh, my poor kid, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? That linguistic tick of ours, what am I going to do? How are we feeling about this? That's evidence of the overparenting problem. When we hear these things, we need to say, we need to be empathetic. Wow, honey, that sounds frustrating or sad or scary or awful or whatever the situation warrants by way of empathy. That sounds, hmm. Then you say, how do you think you're going to handle it, honey? And that incredibly short sentence conveys three strong points. Number one, it's a problem that ought to be handled. Number two, it's not my problem to handle. Number three, I think you're capable of handling it. And that third message is what we've deprived them of feeling throughout their childhood if we've overparented. You know, this is a fabulous, fabulous point. And in your book, you really talk about reevaluating the pronouns, right? You know, yeah. stop saying we when we're referring to the kids' activity. It's not, it's not our science project, right? Yeah, we're not on the soccer team, right? You just try running up and down that field three times, right? (laughs) Your kid is kicking the ball or defending or whatever. Don't deprive them of the joy and frustration and effort and accomplishment of their experience by pretending that we are doing it. No, it's your son. It's your daughter. Exactly. And I I do have an example of what you just shared. My daughter... um started as a freshman last year in New York City at, at, a, at a university and was terribly unhappy. She grew up, you know, by the beach in Southern California, and she had a, a division of herself as a freshman. I don't know if it was a Sex in the City Carrie Bradshaw thing. We're not quite sure what it was. But quickly after she arrived on campus, she realized that being in New York City was not right for her. And she said, Mom, I want to transfer. And I said, really? Okay, well, why don't you do all the legwork and let me know what you decide and I'll support you from the sidelines. Within three months, the kid had transferred to Oregon to another university. She's blissfully happy and she learned about her hardiness, her resilience, her ability to solve problems. And that made me feel that our parenting experience together was a success. Boy, that's a beautiful story. And the former freshman dean in me is really um, feeling a lot of compassion for you and your kid, um, because I would encounter occasionally students who were, you know, unhappy at Stanford, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, and I would, you know, try, and, and the fact that you let her, you heard it, you know, you didn't uh, try to dissuade her, uh, but you, you put the onus for dealing with it squarely in her court, right? It was like, I'll support from the sidelines. I love that. It's They want to know they're believed in. They want to know they're loved no matter what. And they want to live their own life. And when we overhelp, like if we, if you had gotten on the phone to talk to the dean to figure out how does someone transfer, you know, what are the deadlines? How do you put your best foot forward? You know, then you would have deprived her of, 
you know, what we humans experience as joy, actually, in seeing that our hard work leads to some kind of outcome. You know, she could kind of, when she transferred, she knew she did that, you know, largely on her own, which which helps her feel empowered. Exactly. She's happy at Oregon. And when we're offline and you're ready to talk brand names, um, I'd love to hear where she is because my kid is considering schools up there. And uh, I'd love to know a little bit more. So we, we will do it. We're going to jump off to a break because I'll get screamed out if we don't. I, <laughs> I want to give your contact information to reach Julie Lithcott Hames. Please visit howtoraiseanadult.com on Twitter. That's at Raise an Adult, and on Facebook, How to Raise an Adult. And once again, that book is How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kids for Success. We're going to head out to that break. We'll be right back, and that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappy at harvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if? Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on, working too much, not working enough, having too many responsibilities, not having enough money, enough time, enough space. The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back. Let's rejoin the conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames that originally took place in January of 2018. We are talking with Julie Lithcott-Hames about her new book, How to Raise an Adult, Break free of the overparenting trap and prepare your kids for success. And since I had her captive in my studio, I was sharing my own story with my daughter, who's embarking on her college career. But I think what we're really talking about is the marker of success in our kids that success isn't a diploma from an elite school. Success really is defined by some very other, more simple core experiences. Julie, talk about this because this is really important. Yeah. Well, Lisa, you know, you're down there in Southern California. I'm up here in Silicon Valley and everywhere a kid turns in my neighborhood, they see um, so-called trappings of success. They see a Tesla car. They see Stanford University up the road. They see Facebook down the road. They see Google. They see, um, you know, these things that, that are sort of the embodiment of the ideal of success in the minds of some But those of us who've been on the planet a little bit longer have learned perhaps the hard way that success, as you've alluded to, isn't really those things. It's really, 
having a sense of who we are, uh, what makes us tick, what we're good at, what we love, trying to get better at those things, you know, being in community with people who care about those things. Um, you know, it's it's very basic, actually. Um, success, in my view, at least, isn't, you know, the amount of income I make, but the joy I derive from the work I do. And I'm a former corporate lawyer who became a university dean and took a pay cut and then became a writer and took a pay cut. Um, <laughs> and, you know, but the but the work, um, you know, has gotten more and more and more rewarding as I've made those important decisions. So, um, you know, what I want for, when when people say, what's your definition of success for your kids, Julie, I say, I want them to leave my home here in Palo Alto, California, knowing how to work hard because the real world requires hard work, perseverance, persistence, resilience, get back up, try again, you can do it, you know, hard work, I, number one. Number two, I want them to know how to be kind to other humans because that's an essential element of being a human, being able to interact with others advocate for yourself with others, be generous hearted toward others, express gratitude, work hard, be kind. And if they, the third thing I want is that they leave here with their mental health intact. And I don't say that glibly or lightly. Children here in Palo Alto and plenty of other communities are struggling tremendously with the expectations that lead, that, that are based on this narrow definition of success, the brand name college, the right career, the right income. They think that their worth as a human has is something to do with their GPA or their ACT or SAT scores and that they are worth less, literally worthless, worth space less if they don't achieve at that level. And it's harming our kids Yes. So what I want is for them to leave my home with their mental health intact, knowing how to work hard and be kind to other humans. If they do that, they will be well prepared to thrive out in life doing whatever the heck it is, that, whatever the hell it is. I can say that I'm on a podcast. You can, you can, you go girl. Their life. <laughs> That's the humbling piece. They are not our pet. They are not our project. They're not a stock we're managing on NASDAQ. Are they up? Or are they down? They're not ours. They're a separate human from us. You know, and, and that, that recognizing that brings you such relief, not that we don't care or love, of course we do, but they are not ours to micromanage through life. We're trying instead to set them up with the foundation so they can lead their own life. Yeah. And, and, and I think another component is the um, allowing the space and opportunity for failure for the skin knee. And this is something as parents, we have a hard time doing that. We need to step aside and recognize that the failure is part of their success. They must experience it. Well, it's really ironic because in Silicon Valley, the designers and engineers and tech folks here know, you know, they even have it as a mantra, you know, fail your way forward. They know they have to prototype and iterate and prototype and iterate, you know, try and fail, try and fail, test it out, see what works, keep trying, right? That's embedded in their whole, um, philosophy in terms of their their work ethos but then they come home and they parent in a way that is intolerant of imperfection or failure and um so yes you're absolutely right resilience yeah. is this is the key and and we are our kids best role models for this. They think we've led some perfect path. They see you, they see your ex, they see your your long-term partner, they see all the adults in their lives and they're like, oh, they're successful. They've never struggled. Our kids don't realize that we've had setbacks, that we've failed, that we've fallen, that we've done things we're not proud of, you know, that things have not gone our way all the time. We need to sit with them when the bad thing happens and empathize. Boy, honey, that sounds really awful. That must feel awful. And then Pause and just sit with the discomfort as Brene Brown would teach us, like acknowledge that humans are vulnerable and humans, 
feel shame and humans have bad things happen. And then tell a story from our own life about how we coped with some setback. Not to say it's the exact same thing as our kid is going through, but simply to say, kid, I've been there too. I've struggled yes. and, I, and I learned and I'm still me and I'm still loved and I still love you no matter what. It's the best thing we can do. And in terms of uh, helicopter parenting or tiger parenting and what doesn't work about that, you know, and that goes back to the pre-chewing of the food, which is not a good model for raising successful children. We, we, we agree on that. The flip side of it is that allowance for personal discovery. And especially in, in these times, you know, when, when you and I were young and our parents were young and they were raising kids, we were given a very, very different model of what the good life would look like. And kids today have a very different perspective of that. The economy has changed, commerce has changed, careers have changed. And I think this is very exciting, actually. There's an upside to this in that kids get to really come up with even a portfolio career if yeah. that's what pleases them. They can start out one place and they can migrate to another without stigma, where I know for myself, when I went to college the first time, I was I was supposed to like pick my profession at, at I went to college at 16 and yeah. just go do it. Yeah, that was it. Right, right. Yeah. Boy, has the world changed. And boy, does it seem a bit bewildering to us, you know, as we try to anticipate what will our kids need? How can we best support them? Here's what's not changed. Um, we're mammals. And our job, like the job of any mammal parent is to raise our kid, our offspring, to fend for themselves. Yep. And, and if the economy is worse, I'd wage, and, it, and let's say it is, it is. It's certainly a different economy than we're familiar with from our young adulthood. Um, 21st century is this totally weird, unfamiliar, scary shifting landscape. Um, our instinct is to overhelp, to protect, to always be there, to hold their hand, to talk to employers on their behalf, to talk to deans and faculty on their behalf, to yell at coaches on their behalf. My point is, hey, if the world is scarier, if the economy is worse, our kids actually need to be stronger than we were, not yes. weaker. Agreed. Not weaker. And overhelping them teaches them nothing except they're not capable and I'll always be there for you, kid which is a lie. We will not always be there. We will predecease them. At least that's the way it's supposed to happen. And one day they will be bewildered on the doorstep of their forced adulthood, forced by our departure is what I mean. And they yes. won't have a clue what to do. And that essentially um, has crippled their chances, you know, at being the, the strong, capable adult um, that we were supposed to raise them to be. And the book, going back to the book's title, How to Raise an Adult, we're not talking about, the book title isn't How to Raise Children. Yeah. The book title is How to Raise an Adult. And that is really what our aim, I believe, should be as parents, Absolutely. you know, to equip them for life. Exactly. Um, our job as parents is to put ourselves out of a job. Just let that land on you, Right. Our job is to put ourselves out of a job. We will never stop loving them. And God willing and the creek don't rise, they will never stop loving us. But we need to put ourselves out of a job. They no longer need to be parented. You know, they got it. They can fend for themselves. We have confidence in their skill set. And so do they. Yes, beautifully said. And let's talk a little bit about courage and the courage that is necessary 
for a child to become an adult and 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 stand in who they are because that that sense of authenticity and and truth is not something that was necessarily valued in past generations but certainly is valued in adulthood today yeah you know when i think about where courage comes from um you know sometimes people will say to you boy that was brave and you think well no it, whatever I just did wasn't brave because bravery only accrues if the if there was you know if if I overcame a threat you know if there was pain involved if there was a chance that I wouldn't that I wouldn't make it and in other words bravery and courage these things are forged through hardship yep. they cannot develop courage if they've never had to be courageous if nothing was ever scary if they didn't have to take a leap you know they don't get resilience by reading about it they have to um they have to skin their knee and and feel the pain and learn to get back up and and handle that wound and keep going and discover that they're stronger and they've learned something and their body is also physically stronger as a result. So essentially, we have to stop preventing the little mistakes and curveballs from you know happening in our kids' lives. We actually have to let those things happen and to welcome them as necessary teachers within childhood so our kids become the courageous, resilient, strong people we want them to be. Beautifully said. My guest today has been Julie Lithcott-Hames, and the book is How to Raise an Adult, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap, and Prepare Your Kid for Success. To contact her, please connect over at howtoraiseanadult.com, on Twitter at Raise an Adult, and on Facebook, guess what? How to Raise an Adult. We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on this HHTR flashback favorite. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Jessica Leahy and Julie Lithcott-Hames, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.